Good morning, guys. Good to see you today. It is uh, questions you never thought you could ask in church day. Here's how it works. I want to invite you right now, pull out one of these. And in a moment, we are going to splash a number up on this screen. And what we invite you to do is to text in any question you have on God, life, theology, the Bible, Christianity, the Christian tradition, um, fellowship of faith. And I'm going to get those anonymously. And what I'm going to do is do the, the best job I can to succinctly and straightforwardly honest as many of those questions as I can in the time that we have together today. So before we get into it, I actually want to share the why portion of this. This comes out of our core, core documents, uh, core values here at Fellowship of Faith. And undergirding this church is this idea that we want to be real, you know? We don't want to be one of these churches where we put on the, the picture-perfect cookie-cutter mask. We don't want to pretend like we have to kind of keep up certain personas, but we believe that the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that, you know, Christians, they're real people, which means real joys, real passions, real struggles. And so because of this, what we're going to do is strive to communicate God's word and what we're learning about him in ways that uh, are open, in ways that are honest. Um, I, I personally think it's important that as a community, we're honest also about our shortcomings, um, about our lives, and Hopefully it informs a certain sincerity in what we teach. We want to be humble as a church and express our, express our faith in a way that's genuine. That, that's, that's the spirit behind it. So here's the number. 815-314-0363. Again, 815-314-0363 or 0FOF. Text in any questions that you might have because, you know, I bet there's some people here today who are coming with a question that you've been afraid to ask because you think that by asking it, you'll be judged in some kind of way. Text your question in. Maybe you're here today and you have a question that you've been embarrassed to ask because you think that by asking it reveals something that you're struggling with, something that you're dealing with, something that you're questioning, maybe doubting, something that, that, that just isn't settled. And, and, and by asking it, it kind of exposes you. Text your question in. Maybe you're here today and you have a question that you don't know who to ask. Here's your opportunity. Text it. And maybe you have a question here that you've texted or asked a hundred times to other people but have never gotten a satisfactory answer. Well, I just want to invite you, try ponying up on it one more time and let's see what happens here today. So text them into 815 314 0363, and let's see what we get here today. All right. Let's get this refreshing. All right. Let's lead the way here. Why do you think Jesus sacrificed his life for us? If you know anything about the Christian faith, it's that Jesus died on the cross and that this wasn't just a, a movement or a revolution gone awry, but that it was an intentional thing by him, it was intentional by God, and that it accomplished something. Why do you think Jesus sacrificed his life for us? I think it comes down to no simpler answer than this, because he loves you. Because he loves you that much 
that he would die for you. You know, greater love has no one than this, Jesus would say, than that he lays down his life for his friends. And Jesus said, I call you friends. Even those who spit in my face, I want you to be a friend. He loves you so much that he would go to that length to bring God's grace and mercy and salvation and goodness to your life. And that stands at the core of everything life is about. I am so glad that you asked. Here's one. What if I never find out what my purpose is? Right? Who here has not been in that place of uncertainty at time? What if I never find out what my purpose is? I am going to address this in a way that you might find as odd, but stick with me. Who cares if you never find what your purpose is? Just live. Live with all your heart and soul and mind and body and strength for the love and glory of God. Live with love and passion for the people that God has put in your life in the situations God has put you in. Some of the people in this world who have accomplished the most, who have made the most significant differences, and who have led the most fulfilled life could never write a one-sentence statement of their mission statement for life. Stop trying to find out what your cosmic purpose is that's written in the stars and simply live with what God has brought in your life and you will find not only meaning but the difference that you will make in the process. And if I can help you with any specific questions in this that kind of goes a little more beyond the general question, come talk to me because I got good news for you. Questions don't only have to be reserved between 10.50 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. on June 3rd, 2018. Thanks for asking. Here's one. All right. If you killed an enemy while in the Marines, would God forgive me? There is no sin so deep and wide, so great or horrific, so completely over the edge, even if that is killing or murder, that it is beyond the grace and forgiveness of God. I love how Paul writes it. He says, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. That God holds a cosmic trump card that no matter what you have done, no matter what guilt you may be carrying today for an action that you've done in your past, even if it was under orders, even if it was for a greater good, even if it was in, in the military, if this is specific to that. No, God loves you. God forgives you. Ask him for it. Throw yourself upon him. Seek him in that. And just say, Lord, here it is and let it all out. And I'm going to tell you something. You may feel completely different. It may feel like a weight is lifted off and praise God if that's the case, but you may not. You may leave it all out there and still feel that weight and that guilt. This is where faith comes in. Trust that God has forgiven you even if you carry regret and weight 
about what you've done. And I want to make the invitation to you as well, if this is not theoretical, but something that you're actually struggling with, and you just need someone to pray with one-on-one, to share it with one-on-one, to hear words of forgiveness from, come talk to me. In fact, I want to do something right now. I want to pray. And I want all of us to pray. Because you might be here with a sin of your own that you're struggling to find forgiveness in. For 20 seconds, I'm going to shut my yap. And let's just create space, space here. And if you are that Marine or whoever you are, confess it to God right now. Let's pray. And I want you to hear these words. By the very commands of God that he has given me to speak into situations like these, hear these words, you are forgiven. God has forgiven you without reservation, without remainder. You are forgiven forgiven. May that become your new reality. So how about this? Why does a God who teaches unconditional love also enforce hell? The punishment for the fall from grace seems overly harsh. Why can't the wages of sin be punishment and not eternal death? I cannot tell you how much I am with you on this. I cannot tell you how much I have struggled with this myself and so many other people in this room have as well. It does. It seems so harsh. It seems so severe. And what do you do with that? I want to invite you today to look at hell in a different way. Many of us, I think, think of hell as some kind of torture-laden supermax prison that God has constructed and invented to inflict vengeance on those who have stepped out of line, as though God is some kind of torturer with maniacal glee reveling in the misery of those who have offended him in some kind of way. I want to submit to you that this is not the most accurate picture of hell, which has unfortunately been portrayed. I'd like you to think of hell in a different way. If it is true that God is the originator and source 
of all that is good, all that is joyful, all that is peace-laden, all that is full of life and abundance in this world. And if it is true that sin at its fundamental root is nothing more than distancing yourself from God, what that would therefore mean is that sin by its nature also distances you from love, peace, joys, joy, goodness, wholeness, and life because you find those things where God is at. So rather than thinking of sin, as a collection of do's and don'ts that meet punishment out by some lawgiver. Think of sin as a distance campaign from the source of all that's good in this world. And while many might not realize it, many choose the path of sin, distancing themselves from God and all his goodness. And if I've learned anything about God, it is this. He does not force anyone to conform to his will. Sometimes I really wish he did. But he doesn't. In his hell, less filled with people, crying out in misery, oh, what happened to me? I didn't know. And more filled with people who have chosen their entire life and eternity to continue to choose misery as long as it means distance from God than to simply humble themselves and seek his invitation, which is open at any time. Now, there's so much that we can talk about this complicated subject, but I just want you to entertain today what that perspective might do to the struggle that you might be having with God and his unconditional love. I've known so many people that would cut off their nose to spite their face, that would choose the path of misery and the things of this world, when the invitation of goodness and life, sin is so dirty, when you get to its core of rebellion and rejection, and is God weeping over people who would continue to agonize apart from him when his invitation to his presence is there for everyone? Something to think about. Here's one. Let's see. My eight-year-old son wants to talk to his friends about Jesus, but he doesn't really know how to start. Any advice? I tell you, adults as well, you will paralyze yourself if you're looking for the right time, the right moment, the right way, the right technique. Nike got it right. Just do it. If it is important to you, just do it. Can I reframe the question to show how, how this kind of works? What if it said this? My eight-year-old son wants to talk to his friends about his favorite movie, but he doesn't really know where to start. Any advice? You wouldn't have to ask that kind of question, right? Because you just like it and you share the things that you like. Sometimes I think we as adults are embarrassed for our kids when they get a little bold or when they get in it. Just encourage them. Talk to your friend. Ask. Do you know Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? I went to Sunday school. I'm in the rock. I like Jesus. We went to church last Sunday. It's neat. Do you want to come? It's so kind of like scary on the surface, but really if the person's your friend, is there anything like hard-handed, manipulative, subversive in what I just said? Just encourage them to do it. 
How about this? Does our church believe, you do it too. Does our church believe the Bible is the, inf- the infallible word of God, or do you feel there's room for interpretation? Well, yes, it's both. It is, I, we do believe it is the infallible word of God, and we do feel there's room for interpretation, um, because the infallible word of God needs to be interpreted. So, yeah, yes. And why does God seem so much more benevolent in the New Testament than in the Old Testament? A lot of people have, you know, asked this question, have struggled with this, and that's been their perception. It used to be mine as well, and the more I can, all I can say is this, the more that I've read the Old Testament, the more I see a benevolent God there. The more I read the New Testament, the more I see a God of justice there. The greatest salvation events apart from the cross of Jesus Christ are found in the Old Testament. The greatest pictures and descriptions and acts of God in history of grace and mercy are found in the Old Testament. And I would take Old Testament judgment any day over the New Testament judgment of hell. If God already knows what's going to happen, why do we ask for things when we, when we pray? You know, C.S. Lewis, I think, put this one best because he just likes to be asked. I don't know why. I don't know how it works, but I know that it does. And I know that he tells us to. And I know that he, he even attaches outlandish promises to it. So at some point, what I've had to learn is going, I don't know how that one works. So i got to take God at his word on this one and throw myself out there and do it anyway and say, Lord, prove yourself true on this. Great one. Okay, here's one. Let's see. God calls us to not be anxious or worry and to trust in him. However, we're humans and we go through different seasons. After praying and giving God our burdens, how can we better not worry and not be anxious about those issues that are heavy in our hearts? As someone who has dealt with anxiety for most of his life, I resonate with where you're coming. And what I've learned is this. I always used to think that giving my anxiety to God meant a one-time act. I've done it, it's done, and now I should be different. It just doesn't work that way. What I've had to learn is that it is a daily act. It is daily giving over my burdens, the same burdens, my worries, the same worries, my struggles, the same struggles to God again and again and again. And it's in the process of that that over time, God speaks, reinforces heals, and starts to lift the anxieties away. It's like working out. You don't go to the gym once and say, I exercised, now I'm fit. It's a process. And most things are spiritually as well. Okay, let's do this one. If Israel and Jews, if Israel and Jews were God's original chosen people, Why isn't there more condemnation from the greater Christian community denouncing those calling for their total 
destruction. So I had to kind of work through this one out loud, but as I'm reading it, if, if Israel's and Jews were God's chosen people, why aren't Christians getting more mad about anti-Semitism and about things like that? Honestly, because people are more wrapped up in their own lives and the struggles of others across the board, any issue. There are a lot of Christians who openly denounce these kinds of things, but there are many who don't and many who turn a blind eye or are simply ignorant to other aspects of it as well. This is why Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It means an investment in people where we learn to stand up for other people, Jews or otherwise. It doesn't get more basic than that. How about this? What is our church's view on birth control? Well, given the population of the Rock Children's Ministry and the Boulder Student Ministry, you will see very quickly that it is a birth control practicing church. All right? You know, historically, all churches of every stripe and variety denounced birth control up until about 1933. There's something always sobering to me, and that is, is someone who does use birth control, that for nearly 2,000 years... The collective Christian wisdom tradition has said, don't do it that way. You know, in this day and age, um, birth control has become one of those things in most Protestant um, Christian traditions that has not been denounced like it continues to be in Catholic traditions. And here's what the debate comes down to. How do you view sexuality? Is sexuality something Whose, which, which, which primary and therefore sole purpose is for procreation? Or do you view sexuality as something that has a greater capacity in God's gift-giving to be used for other purposes as well? If you view the purpose of sex as procreation, and if pleasure comes along the way, well, fringe benefit, right? But it's for sex, it doesn't give you a lot of room. But if you view God's gift of sex as having greater capacity, greater touch points than procreation alone, it takes the birth control subject kind of off the table. And it's that position that many Protestant churches and fellowship of faith, at least historically, has embraced. Being said, the first command in the Bible, the very first command in the Bible, which should give us note, is this. Be fruitful and multiply? I just want to caution those of us here who have embraced birth control to not denigrate or dismiss what God called people to do first in our rush for pleasure without consequence. All right. Here's one. It's tough. What's your favorite movie? <laughs> you know, if I was to answer this publicly, I might still go back to something like Braveheart or the Lord of the Rings trilogy or something, well, Fellowship of the Ring or something like that. But if you were to ask me in private, pitch perfect. What do the different synods in the Lutheran church mean? Let me unpack. 
We tend to think of denominations today in these kinds of categories. Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran. You could add a few other stripes and varieties. What catches a lot of people unaware is that in any one of those descriptors I've given, there are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of sub-denominations within them that have no affiliation with each other and often are so diametrically opposed to each other on various points of doctrine that they end up having more in common with someone in a different denomination than in one that shares their own label. Now, in the States, there are well over a dozen different kinds of Lutheran stripes and varieties, and, and you get into the hundreds when you go worldwide. But in the States, there's big three. ELCA, which is the biggest, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. LCMS, which is second, Fellowship of Faith is LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And the third is the WELS, W-E-L-S, or Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. The biggest distinction between the big two, ELCA and LCMS, comes down to this single point. How do you view this? Do you see the Bible as containing the Word of God, or do you see the Bible as the Word of God? Now, if you're not careful, it sounds like I said the same thing. But if you give a moment to think about it more critically, you can see there's actually a distinction being made. Do you see this book as the Word of God through and through? That what here is written is true and given for the encouragement and conviction and guidance and teaching and wisdom of God to his people? Or does it simply contain it? Where it has to be rooted out or sifted out amidst all the other words that clutter it, forgive me, along the way. And how you answer that question will lead you to which of those two denominations you would more resonate with. Now, how about this? Why are there people who are more innocent who suffer more than some who have done much more evil that do not suffer as much? I mean, the simple answer is we live in a corrupt, fallen unjust world. If we lived in a world that was just, this wouldn't be the case. But it obviously is. And this is kind of what God has been crying out since Genesis 3. Sin leads you to a corrupt world, a corrupt world where corrupt things happen, where justice isn't done. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The presence of sin and all that comes with it has, has ruined not only the material of God's world, but the very systems of how they work. But the good news of Christianity has always been that though we live in an unjust, corrupt world right now, Christ's come back. And the day is going to come when God sets all things right and does justice again. Great question. Did Paul ever meet the other original apostles. Yeah, I can't say he met all of them, but at least some of them he did. Mm -hmm. How can God love and forgive the people who constantly harm others, either physically or mentally? I don't know. 
I know, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? People that we love to hate. People that we just want to strike down. People that we want to see judged. People that we want to see rotting in hell. God is a God of unconditional love. And even when people are at their worst, corrupt and dark and twisted, the message of the Bible through and through is that while justice is not absent, his love nevertheless pervades. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, but does it go the other way? Are we called to love ourselves as much as we love our neighbors? Eh, not really. It's kind of common to parrot that today. How can you love your neighbor if you don't love yourself? If you love yourself more, you can love your neighbor more, right? It makes us, it kind of like solves some issues for us. Yeah, Jesus isn't interested in solving those issues for you. You don't see the direct command, love yourself. Now, in the Bible, it's kind of self-evident. You'll see Paul talk about it in self-evident ways, that of course you love yourself, you care for yourself, you feed yourself, you take care of yourself. Even when you're in some kind of nihilistic state, you still, at some level, are concerned with yourself. So it kind of gives that there's some kind of self-love there is something you're not going to escape, even if there's things you hate about yourself. No, it keeps the focus entirely off you and entirely out there. Be more concerned out there. Keep your focus on your neighbor. Not what's right. Not what. Not what is right here. All right. Let's see. I got time for a couple more. Which pitch perfect? First, the second one was garbage. The third one, I won't even bring myself to see. What does this church preach on creation? A literal 24-hour, six-day creation, or does it take a Lutheran approach? I attended a conference in the fall, um, a number of us here from FOF did, on um, creational science and creational studies and things like that, and it was fascinating to kind of realize that there's no fewer than like 12 different interpretations of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 held by Bible-believing Christians out there, and most of the presenters who happened to be there for that conference have said, yeah, I've held no fewer than like nine. Um, People try to extract, in my opinion, way too much out of Genesis 1 and 2. Yes, in many ways, we do preach a literal, how's it put, 24-hour, six-day creation as a viable interpretive option. But it isn't the only viable interpretive option. And I think that Christians have drawn too fine of lines and too harsh of distinctions in trying to root out what the message of Genesis 1 and 2 actually is. It's fascinating to me that when you look at the three ecumenical creeds, these summary statements held by all Christians that summarize the key Christian beliefs, they all start with the truth that God has created. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the Apostles' Creed says. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things seen and unseen, the Nicene Creed says. And except for last week, I never read the Athanasian Creed, so I can't tell you how it begins. 
But it strikes me as interesting that none of them have ever tried to argue for a specific position. So here's my challenge to you. Wrestle vigorously through the text. Let it shape you and form you. Let it challenge you. Wrestle vigorously through the the interpretive issues that surround it. Let it challenge where you're at, wherever you might be at, to see things through new eyes. And I think that in the process, God will bring things to the fore that you've never even thought of that might be held by someone in a different camp that have been right before your eyes but utterly missed. How about this? Where can I get an FOF hoodie? Seriously, I've wanted one for like a year. Demand, you know, supply's tight these days. I, you know, just twice a year we have like a run, you know? Come to FOF every week. Keep your eye out there because when it strikes, you got to grab it. Otherwise, it's too late. Do we believe that communion is the body and blood of Christ, like Catholics, or that it represents the body and blood of Christ? And can you explain why we believe that? Well, do we believe it is the body and blood of Christ or that it represents the body and blood of Christ? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here's here's, um, typical Lutheran teaching on this and what we hold to at Fellowship of Faith, that... um, that this didn't die on the cross for you, that this wasn't flogged or nailed to a tree, that if you were to put this in some kind of food laboratory, you would find, in fact, that it's nasty, stale bread, maybe styrofoam, I don't know, and not human cells. But the common phrase that's used is that somehow with it, in it, under it. It's like no one really knows how to say this. Permeating and coming out the pores of it, Christ is there. He's fully there. He's really there. That Christ is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, we know. But in somehow and in some way, he comes to be in this meal, in this place, in a very real way. And that when Christ is there, he's there in his totality. That he doesn't separate parts of himself out, but that he's there. And some level, it's a strange mystery. And there are so many reasons behind this line of thinking that I can unpack for you, but that in some fashion, it's more than just, oh, I ate a piece of styrofoam. Yeah, think of Jesus today. That somehow in this nasty $2 meal we put out here for you to, it's like not even an hors d'oeuvre. In the cheap, forgotten, and despised things of this world, Christ is there. That kind of captures the heart of what we believe on that. I'm so out of time, and there are so many more questions. You know, I just want to start off by saying thank you for asking. There's some great ones that came across this one and, 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 and questions that I know that are important to you, and I want to thank you for putting yourself out there, and I want to encourage you this. Maybe we didn't get to your question here today. 
it's not forgotten. We're continuing this next Sunday. And the way that we're going to lead the 1030 service next Sunday is by taking the 1030 questions that came in here today that I just didn't have time to get to. So I want to encourage you to come back. And any new questions that strike you on the way, bring them with and text them in again. Let's see what we can figure out along the way.